Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Practicology Podcast, where we are bridging the gap between Scripture and everyday life, because the Bible belongs not only beside the stack of commentaries, but also next to the pile of dirty dishes as well, if you indeed have one of those piles. My name is Matthew Kane, and I am thrilled to be joined today by a guest contributor coming to us from the lovely hot state of North Carolina, David Peterson. David is not only a brother in the Lord, but also a friend, and we appreciate him joining us for what will be two episodes on the foundation of a family. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. It's a real privilege to join my good friend, Matthew, for today's podcast. And David, I presume from the title that you've provided us, The Foundation of a Family, you are going to be giving a scripture's message about marriage. Yes, I am. For something as important and as precious as marriage, we want to make sure we're getting our message from Scripture. Maybe you heard the one about a minister who was away on his summer vacation when he learned that one of the women in his church had just been married. He decided to send her a wire of congratulations and thought immediately of a fitting and beautiful Scripture verse. He sent a wire with this message. Please read 1 John 4 and 18. Now, the telegraph operator at the other end didn't know the difference between 1 John the epistle and John the gospel. So when she relayed the message, she simply wrote, read John 4 and 18. Uh-oh, I think I know where this might be going. <laughs> well, when the happy bride received the telegram delivered to her house by the messenger, she rushed to the Bible to see what message her minister had sent her. Actually, 1 John 4 and 18 would have been a beautiful and fitting message. It reads, perfect love casts out all fear. However, she turned to John 4 and 18, and this is what she read. The one whom you now have is not your husband. <laughs> now, when it comes to marriage, we need to make sure that we're getting the right message. We certainly don't receive our message in regard to marriage from society around us. We don't necessarily receive the right message from top-selling books on the subject. The foundational message about marriage is found in God's Word. Yeah, it's like society is attempting to hijack an institution established by God. And while society may permit that, ultimately God doesn't. And in any area of life where God has given clear guidance on how something is to be enjoyed, and a good marriage provides abundant proof that God provides us with gifts to enjoy, but where God has given clear guidance on how something is to be enjoyed, our departure from Scripture's message is to our own detriment. That's certainly an excellent point, Matthew. So let's find Scripture's first message on marriage and the family in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Now, the material here can be broken down into three sections. The first one, from verses 18 to 20, could be entitled, Help Wanted. The second section from verses 21 to 23 could be labeled God's gift to man. And the last section, verses 24 and 25, could be called a new family. So let's look at these verses together. We'll jump right in. The first section then is help wanted. Verse 18 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. So God knew that Adam had a need, which is interesting if you think about it. Here's a sinless man in perfect fellowship with God, living in a perfect environment. Now, you would think that would be enough, but it was not, not according to God. Adam needed 
and wanted companionship. Now, the fact that God was going to provide a woman as a help or a companion does not imply some subsidiary role. The word for help is used of God himself many times in the Old Testament. Now, throughout Genesis 1, you might remember that as God surveys his work, over and over again, we read this phrase, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. But when we come to our text here, verse 18, God sees something that is not good, and that should get our attention. It was not good for the man to be alone. So God sets to work on doing something about it. Now, there are two quick things to note here. And first is God's name. In chapter 1, God is referred to with his name Elohim, which emphasizes his power as the creator. But the name for God in our text is Yahweh or Jehovah. That's noted by the capitalized Lord God throughout these verses. Yahweh emphasizes his covenant relationship with his people, and relationship is the subject of our text. Yahweh is a personal God who deeply cares for his creatures. So he sees that man has a need, and he takes action to meet that need. God himself doesn't exist in isolation, but is a triunity surrounded by a heavenly court, and he would seek to provide something for the first man that would fill his need for relationship. That's fantastic, Dave. Great point about the change in titles or the name of God that is used. As you're pointing out, God is a social relational being, having always existed as a trinity. And so he's made us to be relational creatures. That doesn't mean marriage in particular is for everyone. But the principle of Genesis 2.18, that man is not to be alone, I, I take it that is important for everyone. We aren't meant to make life's pilgrimage on our own. Friendship is a blessing. We need the fellowship of a local church of Christians. It's not good for us to be alone. But I do think it's fair to say marriage is uniquely intended by God to be the most intimate human relationship and involves the most significant covenant known in human relationships. Mm -hmm. Yes, thanks for emphasizing that, Matthew. Now, in addition to mentioning the use of God's name here, notice that secondly, we have name calling. Verse 19 says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And then we have Adam giving names to all of them. That brings up an interesting question in my mind. Why didn't God create Adam and Eve simultaneously? Why were they not made at the same time? Seems that he did this with the animals. Before God brought Eve to Adam, he puts him through this task of name calling, naming the animals. Interestingly, Adam will do something that God himself did in chapter one. Chapter one and verse five says, God called the light day and the darkness he called night. So as God's representative in his creation, Adam is given the authority to name these creatures. And as he's naming these animals, Adam discovered that for every animal, there was both a male and a female counterpart. And he probably wondered, where's mine? Well, he gives them these names. Again, perhaps God made Adam experience this felt need so he could appreciate it even more after God met it. And I'm sure he did. I have no doubt Adam responded with thankfulness, appreciation, worship. I believe God still does this today. He often 
prepares us to receive his good gifts. And when we do receive them, the appropriate response is thankfulness, appreciation, praise, worship. Matthew, I'm sure you've been thankful for the Lord's gifts to you today. Amen. I definitely thank the Lord for the gift that Esther is to me. I I don't think she'd say I was wearing a help wanted sign. It was probably more like a help desperately needed sign. And she kindly had mercy on me and I am praising the Lord for his goodness. As am I. The Lord has been so good to us. He's been good to me in bringing Allison into my life. We've enjoyed 22 years of married life together now. I'm so glad that she's by my side. So this brings us to the Second section of our passage, verses 21 to 23, and here we have God's gift to man. We'll often hear about people who think they might be God's gift to women. This actually was, she was God's gift to man. And we'll notice three things here. First of all, the formation of the woman. Ancient Near Eastern texts have no account of the formation of woman, of the woman. By contrast, the biblical account devotes one verse to the creation of man, that's verse 7, but six to the formation of the woman, six times as many verses. That's how complex women are. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Are you disagreeing with that? I'm, I'm just wondering if I'm going to leave that in the podcast or if something might need to be cut out, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Carry on. So note that although God made man from the ground, he did not do the same with the woman. Verse 21 says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam and he slept and he took one of his ribs or maybe one of his sides is better and closed up the flesh instead thereof and the side which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman. So here's the formation of the woman. Now God showed Adam that she was a part of him, equal with him. She came from his side. He was to cherish her as his own flesh. When we move to the New Testament, we come to Ephesians 5, where Paul says, in the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one has ever hated his own body, but he feeds it and takes care of it, just as Christ also does the church. So she was formed From Adam's side. One of the great quotes from the Puritan writer Matthew Henry is, quote, Eve was not taken out of Adam's head to top him, neither out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved by him, end quote. Now, also note that God did not fill Adam's need for companionship by giving him another man. Same-sex marriage is not marriage at all, but a perversion of it. It goes against the plain teaching of God's word here in Genesis and elsewhere, including the words of Jesus himself. It's often pointed out as well that there are three persons involved in this foundational passage about marriage. One man, one woman, and God. So that marriage has been described as a triangle with God at the top. So I want you to picture that in your mind. A marriage is like a triangle with God at the top, and the closer each partner moves to God, the closer they are actually moving toward each other. When marriages fall apart, it's always because at least one partner is moving away from God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? As soon as 
Adam and Eve disobeyed God. They were, they were there at the top of that triangle. As soon as they disobeyed God, they not only were separated from him, but they began to experience alienation from each other. Adam started blaming Eve, right, for his problems. So here we have the formation of the woman. Yeah, I like that picture of the triangle, David. It actually reminds me of our own wedding day. 18 years ago it was for Esther and I. And in my father-in-law's speech at the wedding reception, he said, Matthew, my counsel to you is to put the Lord first. And Esther, my counsel to you is to put the Lord first. And someone might hear that and think, well, shouldn't you put your spouse first? Well, my father-in-law's point was, if I put the Lord first, Esther isn't going to suffer as a result of that. And if Esther is putting the Lord first, I'm not going to suffer as a result of that. The truth is, if I am strong in my relationship with the Lord, honoring him as I should, I'm going to be a better husband. And likewise, a wife will be a better wife if she's doing the same thing. So that triangle imagery is helpful. As we each truly draw closer to the Lord, it will only be a blessing to our marriage, right? Amen. Yes. So now after the formation of the woman, we see, secondly, the presentation of the woman. On verse 22 at the end, it says there that the Lord God brought her unto the man. So he made the woman, formed her, brought her unto the man. By the way, the word made here is the idea of being fashioned or sculpted. The verb pictures God as a sculptor, carefully and deliberately shaping the woman into someone that would meet Adam's need. And Adam definitely liked what he saw. Verse 22 implies that he didn't then wake up and find her lying by his side, but that rather God brought her to him. It was a presentation. Interestingly, God brought the animals to Adam in verse 19, and he named them. Now God brings the woman to Adam, and he names her. But what a difference, because the last thing to mention here is the appreciation of the woman. Verse 23, Adam says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So Adam's response here indicates his enthusiastic approval. These are, interestingly, the first recorded words of Adam. The New English translation has Adam saying, this one at last. At last, this is the one. There was full appreciation of the woman. And notice that nothing is yet said of the woman as a childbearer. She's not simply a birthing person. She is valued for herself alone. She is God's gift to man. And let me say to all my married brothers out there, she still is God's gift to man. Oh man, that's excellent stuff, David. Tell me from your experience, what are a couple of practical ways that husbands should express appreciation for the woman God has given them? And how should wives express appreciation for their husbands? How, do, how does Allison encourage you? Well, for one, we need to be willing to praise our wives. And I'm not a social media person, but I would encourage married men to primarily praise your wife privately. If it's always done on a social media platform, your wife may properly suspect your motive is to show the world how amazing you are as a husband rather than how amazing she is as your wife. So <laughs> praise her privately. Sometimes you can leave little notes around the house. You might leave a note on the bathroom scale that says just right or some other such note. Also plan time with her. Plan time with her. Take the initiative 
because taking the initiative lets her know how much you treasure her as your wife. So you plan a date night. You plan a trip. Go for a walk, but plan time with her alone. And say, I love you throughout the day. We probably tell each other three to four times throughout the day, I love you. As far as ways in which Allison encourages me, there's a lot that could be said. She'll often provide words of affirmation, knowing that that is a love language that I understand. She always kisses me goodbye when she leaves the house. I do the same for her. Even if I'm running to the store to pick up a gallon of milk and I'll be back in 20 minutes. Again, it shows how much I mean to her and how much she means to me. Those are great examples. I appreciate that. You mentioned the words of affirmation love language. Our listeners may be familiar with Gary Chapman's five primary love languages that he speaks of. Words of affirmation, quality time, physical touch, acts of service, and receiving gifts. And there's a lot to that, I think. it's it's This is part of knowing our spouse is to learn which of those they best respond to, which of those they most need. And uh, I'd say, you know, one of those at least, Esther and I definitely share. But the second key love language that each of us would look for is different from one another. And of course, the tendency is to want to express the love language that we actually want to receive. But the point is that loving, part of loving my spouse is learning and knowing what they appreciate and learning to express love to them in the way that is most meaningful to them. David, we're at the conclusion of our time for this first episode. I really appreciate what you've been telling us today, and I'm looking forward to part number two. So to our listeners, we hope you'll tune in for the next episode as well to get the remainder of David's teaching from Genesis chapter two on the foundation of a family. David, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you, everybody, for listening. We hope you have a great day and tune in again next time to the Practical Podcast.